Hey, this is Richie Knuckles, and you are listening to the Scene World Podcast. It's the Scene World Podcast. I'm AJ. He's Jörg. Neither of us are wearing bikinis. <laughs> That's good to know. That's very, very good for the viewers. In a minute, we have Scotty Allen from Strange Parts. Who's also known as the iPhone guy. Yes. Um, so that's happening in a minute, uh, very shortly, because I don't think we have very much news. This is part one of our our special June stravaganza of um, of, of repair. Right month. to repair. Yeah, yeah. This is not, I don't think it's an actual, like, you know, not, it's not official, like, right to repair month, but we're making it our internal scene world, right to repair month. So we're kicking that off with Scotty. Um, and we've got some extra other guests coming in uh, throughout the month that should be interesting. We're not going to say who they are just yet because it's going to be a surprise. Um, anyway, um, I have to say thank you for Scotty for being so enthusiastic and wanting to talk to us. And mm-hmm. well, I, I, I kept trying. <laughs> so I'm really sure people will love. Um, he was very open. And um, what he would tell us, so I guess there's a lot of background that people didn't know yet about strange parts that we will reveal in this interview. Yes, so that is so, shortly. Before that, news. though, yes, news. Um, I've got some, um, which I've forgotten already because nice, you know, okay. Um, no, okay, so so Cytronic, who is um, one of the big. C64 software um, publishers at this point. Um, they have just announced that they will be releasing Kings Valley 64, which is a classic game, which had been converted to the the Spectrum, the ZX Spectrum, in 2009, and have has now been converted to the 64. I don't know what it was originally on. I, I don't know what the original platform of Kings Valley was, but um, it is going to be distributed and released by Cytronic. Yeah. And the other news is that Retrobit actually um, started reproducing with license from Sega the original official Sega Sega Mega Drive controllers six-button arcade pad Mm. with the original DZAP 9-pin ports and just as a reminder because many people don't know that it, it, um, despite you can connect them to the Z64 you shouldn't because they are causing signals that can actually burn your CIA or your SID chip there is a uh, thing it's it's called the uh, 64 JPX red I believe it is I have it on mine because I use a Sega Genesis controller on my 64 and it it, it converts the signals to something that's not going to blow up your computer exactly and for many many years people were saying this is fake this is not true but actually I had the C64G where this happened mm-hmm. the CIA was toast yes 
I think Master System controllers you can plug in with no problem, but the Genesis and Mega Drive, as they're called in Europe, you can't. Yeah. And interestingly, the... Um, yeah, well, actually, you have to say the Mega Drive is the original name because it was also named that way in Japan. Mm-hmm. So the exclusion is uh, the... Ex- well, the exception here is America. Actually. Yeah, I don't know exactly what... the point of like 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 there is another mega... product called um, the uh, mega drives that is why they're oh, really? allowed yeah oh yeah that is but, why but they're still, allowed genesis doesn't sound like a video game console genesis is like a biblical book i know it's i i don't i it's it's a weird like like why not just call it like the super sega or something like that like super but nintendo it, but it has blast processing yes yes okay Anyway, well, the they could have they could have called it the the Sega Blast or something, you know, like something that would make you think more gaming than like Genesis. Hmm. Genesis is either a biblical book or a band with Phil Collins, neither of which is incredibly exciting. <laughs> well, my dad life loves Phil Collins. I so do I. Phil Collins is pretty much the embodiment of all that is awesome about the eighties. Love <laughs> Phil Collins to death, but but it does not does not garner the idea of a awesome video game console. Yeah, anyway, the interesting thing is um, it's, it's, it's actually exclusive on Amazon, so you can't get it from eBay, you can't get it from anywhere else. The, on the other places where you can get this controller, it's just a USB version for the PC, mm-hmm. so Amazon is exclusive. And okay. if you buy it from Europe, from European Amazon, you get the um, Euro- European version with a red start button. Mm. And if you buy it from Amazon USA, you get the Genesis version, which is with the blue start button. Okay. So it's, they, they really made it 100% like the original, including the button colors. Coolio. Yeah, which is, of course, bullshit because, uh, I don't know. Um, but anyway... Anyway, it's wirklich, it's really 100% um, the original thing. And they also made a blue edition that, of course, is not original. It's called Clear Blue for Mega Drive 1 and Mega Drive 2. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have Clear Blue, you can get this too. Okay. The, the problem here is, compared to the Nintendo um, gamepads, the Mega Drive gamepads are really really getting old because the way they are made you know with this contact plate of rubber mm-hmm. and all this stuff if the rubber is getting old and falling apart there's no way of fixing this thing for good right. so i i bought tons of controllers on ebay and many of them were broken despite they were listed as working, and then the seller told me, yeah, we tested it like five years ago, and then we put <laughs> it in stock. Uh, so <laughs> they don't age very well. So do yourself a favor, and I would say get them, yeah. because there will not be any chance to get the six-button version anymore. Um, of course, there are games like the Switch of Rage series, they don't work with the six-button controllers, 
they make wrong inputs. You need the three button controllers, okay. which is really weird because um, people didn't believe this. I had a friend over like, okay, you know, you need the the three button controllers. And we actually had a few months ago an interview with Stefano Arnold from Tectoy. And we spoke about this with Andrew Fisher and me um, on the podcast where I was asking why why you didn't do the six-button version, and he told me because people preferred the three-button version, which is strange because games like Mortal Kombat can't even be played correctly with the three-button controller. Mm. So never, never really understood why they decided to reproduce the three-button controllers. I'm not sure if the, really the reason is just the customers didn't want the six-button controllers. Because, seriously, I wouldn't get a three-button controller just because one game has an issue think, and preferred over the six-button controllers. I think I got a three-button. I think that's what I use on my 64. But then, of course, the 64 only has one button. So Actually, it has two. Well, yeah, but nothing people, uses it. Most people don't know that. Actually, Chase HQ2 uses, uses mm-hmm. it. That is why the GS controller actually has a second button, because um, because the second button is actually used for um, turbo, mm-hmm. and on the version of the game for normal for normal joysticks, this is just space key. Mm. And Super Mario Bros. is supporting the second button. Yeah, you know, Super Mario Brothers also. Um... It's got a couple of different configurations for that, and uh, the JPX Red for the 64, which is what you use to plug in your um, Sega Genesis controller, has a couple of different modes in which it maps one of the buttons to the up, you know, to like the controller up thing, so you can use that to jump. And using that um, with the 64 version of Super Mario Brothers, uh, this is the first time I've ever actually beaten Super Mario Brothers. Wow, nice. Um, pretty, uh, yeah. Actually, interestingly, my adapter was handmade by my grandfather, mm. so I have neither of those options. Mm-hmm. But but I got the GS and the original the original uh, joystick, which is bullshit, by the way, um, because the quality <laughs> is awful. Yeah. Um, but hey, the machine was already great because um, yeah. Well, Commodore wasn't shit with with good joysticks. That's true. Mm. Um, you know, and actually, actually, I bought myself two of those controllers that were sold by this guy, Retro Game Boys, mm-hmm. on eBay. It's a Commodore sixty four Atari two thousand six hundred replacement controller right so i bought them and they are still at waiting at custom sitting there to get shipped to me okay so let's see how well that goes they are costing 34 dollars a piece and he already sold 58 oh i think i know what you're talking about it's it's a yeah, I, th- I think I know exactly what you're talking about. They're they're on eBay. I see them for sale. They're they're like new yeah. looking controllers. Yeah, they're, they're really good looking things. Yeah, yeah, I've got them on my watch list. I'm thinking about and them. and it's 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 actually homemade. If you look, yeah. there's a picture of the PCB where it mm-hmm. actually says Retro Game Boys yeah. Yeah. 1.0, yeah. 
Though they are newly produced controllers. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about getting one too, because just just because they look so awesome and you I know, adapt. I know. Of course, I got the Commodore sixty four version, mm-hmm. not the Atari labeled version. Yep, it's awesome. So there's no difference. It's just the, the label is different. I know there's because no you know Atari versus Commodore. Yeah. yeah, I have a friend for whom is still a thing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm always mocking him about it. <laughs> hey, we brought it up in the last podcast, but I want to show everybody that Nick Vivid's album is out. I have it on cassette because I'm just that. Still cool. waiting for mine. Still waiting yes. for mine. To so write. that is there. Um, you can find it at uh, nickvivid.com. Uh, there's lots of different websites. We'll link them all. So check it out. Buy that because it's awesome. Hmm. Um, oh, and I also want to make a correction in the in the podcast, the one before the last one with the Houston family. Mm-hmm. I accidentally confused um, Chris Holzbeck with Rob Hubbard mm-hmm. when we talked about the Manta Fox strip poker, who made the music for it. So I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Nobody said this word, but um, the thing is, I knew it better. In this second, it slipped my mind, and when mm-hmm. I edited it, I heard it, but I forgot to cut it out. So who, it. So who, who actually did the music for Samantha Fox, Trip Poker? Rob Hubbard. Oh, okay. And none of the Hoosens actually noted the mistake and didn't correct me, so mm-hmm. hey. Well, you probably could have just let it go and no one would ever noticed. Uh, yeah. We will cut this out. No! We yeah, will leave yeah. it in. Yeah, I think I think um, a good journalistic project should be ready to correct their mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that actually, said, yeah. yeah. So what we can do is actually making a remix of um, the game and let Chris Silspect do the music, and then suddenly I was right. There you go. There you go. Oh, oh. yes. Oh yeah, uh, about the controller thing. They also make the same controllers for the Saturn, also original, but the, my Saturn controllers are still awesome like new, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I will get um, new Saturn controllers. Maybe in a few weeks, months. Okay. Anyway, the Mega Drive controllers are awesome. Cool. So, anyway, uh, Scotty Allen is waiting right over there to talk to us about strange parts and iPhones and all the stuff that he's doing, so... Let's go talk to him and find out about that. So today we're talking to Scotty Allen. He is the guy behind Strange Parts. And as Jörg said before, the iPhone guy. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So the thing is, you became pretty famous. Actually, to this point, you have um, over 1 million YouTube subscribers because you had the idea of moving to... um, China and building your own device out of single parts from the electronics market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's how I've gotten my start here anyway, and and probably the thing that people people still know me for. Um, I'm trying to obviously broaden the channel beyond just being being the iPhone guy in China. Um, but uh, but it's yeah, I mean it's gotten things off to uh, to a real um, a really exciting start here. Yeah, actually, um, when AJ and I discussed. Um, 
if you would be suitable as a guest, you you were actually doing this pinball factoring video in China. Oh, yeah, it's like right. this is our guy, retro. Yeah. This is yeah, perfect. yeah, totally, <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. So I'm trying to broaden into into more avenues of of manufacturing, and I I guess I think of Strange Parts as a travel show for geeks. So it's sort of the blend of adventure, technology, and travel, and um, you know different different content that we produce um, sort of hits on different of those. Um, three areas in different amounts, but um, but that's kind of the area that, that we're playing in anyway. Hmm. But but let's start way earlier. How did it actually happen that you tinkered um, with electronics? And I guess you have a degree in engineering. I do. I, I have a I have a degree in computer science actually. Okay. Um, so I I at least professionally come from the from the software side. Um, but but I started. I mean, my my interest in electronics started when I was a kid. Um, probably at I don't know five or six. Uh, my dad bought me a uh, uh, like a six, one of those big six volt lantern batteries that had the screw terminals on top and um, some wire and some buzzers and lights and switches. And um, I had great fun playing around with that. And that um, grew to learning to solder at probably I don't know seven or eight and uh, wanting to build my own robot and, and all sorts of tinkering. I was always taking all of the stuff in the house apart and uh, whether it worked or not. And it didn't work by the time I got done with it. Um, uh, and, um, and so that, you know, that then led to an interest with computers sort of in parallel. Um, I, uh, in high school and college, thought I was going to have uh, a career as a lighting designer in theater. And, um, and Later, I kind of realized that the, the part that I liked most about that was the technology and was, was all of the gadgets that, that you got to play with um, doing that, and um, ended, up, ended up with a, a career in, um, in software engineering. Uh, and, um, and then I feel like it's kind of come full circle, because now I am, I am uh, ostensibly an entertainer uh, about electronics um, uh, you know, uh, on the internet. So, um, so it feels like you know, what I'm doing now is kind of a merging of of all of my, you know, various things that I've been interested in in the past. Interestingly, in your other interviews, I mean, so far you only did like 12, 13 minutes interviews um, from what I saw, and you were describing yourself as a nomad, and in your mm -hmm. recent videos, actually, you said you want to build an office in China. Yeah. And so you are changing your lifestyle a bit and finally get settled in a way. Uh, a bit. I don't know. I mean, I, I still definitely think of myself as a nomad, um, and, and I think there's going to be a strong component of travel um, in Strange Hearts. Probably, honestly, probably more travel in the future than there has been in the past um, two years. Uh, but I'm also realizing that, um, you know, I want to continue doing uh, content around building things, and you really need a space to do that. And so, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're in the process of, I've just hired a head of operations um, to help me with all of the logistical problems that, that creating this kind of content um, involves in, in, in all sorts of, you know, strange places in the world. And, um, and so, yeah, we're actively working right now to find a workshop um, where we can do that kind of stuff in Shenzhen. Um, but we're also gearing up to do um, uh, some, some exciting travel in, um, in Africa, hopefully this year, probably some stuff in India. Um, I've got a couple other places that, that um, I've got my eyes on. So, um, so definitely don't, uh, I don't foresee giving up the travel component anytime soon. Um, I, I, I remember seeing recently the video from the guy in uh, Qatar. Um, and at first, my first thought was like, okay, his English is not so good because you were talking about falcons and stuff. Yeah. Uh -huh. And when you switch the topic to horses, 
He totally went <laughs> yeah. crazy and told you about the love of, of horses. I was like, okay, it's not a matter of English. He didn't just like the topic you have chosen. It's just a matter, yeah, a matter of interest rather than English. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I found this interesting that next next to, ta um, to tinkering with electronics, you also focus on people and the society in other countries. That's a totally different um, theme and to bake this into the same YouTube channel is kind of unique because normally people like do several channels, you know, travel channel, electronics channel, tinkering channel, but you put it all in, in, um, in the same YouTube channel and you made yourself kind of a brand because of the way you are in front of camera. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying anyway. I mean, that's, that is, I, you've definitely picked up part of the sort of underlying um, mission, maybe, of Strange Parts, which is, um, you know, I, I'm trying to make content that appeals to geeks, first and foremost, people like myself, that are sort of curious about how the world works, that are curious about technology, that are curious about the industrial world and how, how things are made and physical things, um, and all of the weird sort of side effects and things that come out of that. Um, and, and markets is definitely one of the more interesting things, I think, and, and one of the lenses into that world. Um, which is why how I found myself in in uh, Doha looking at at the the Falcon market where they sell million dollar falcons. Um, but I think, I mean, I I have been traveling uh, all over the world, but but in very out of the way places for uh, a, almost twenty years now. And um, I think one of the things that I have realized in my travels um, has been uh, how how genuinely friendly and and sort of open and welcoming the vast majority of people are, regardless of where you are in the world. Um, but that also uh, our sort of 24-hour news cycle media is incentivized not to really communicate that very well to people. And so I've really realized that there might be an opportunity here with Strange Parts to sort of bring people in on sort of the technology angle and the geek angle, but also to use that as maybe an opportunity to show them uh, a bit about what life in these countries is like, and hopefully start to change people's minds a little bit about um, about what you know what someone say from the Middle East is like, or what someone from China is like, um, through the lens of what everyday life is like, as opposed to these sort of newsworthy events that we see in the media. I mean, the, you know, the <laughs> there's the saying like what what bleeds leads, right? Uh, in in um, you know in the in the mainstream news and therefore the headline of uh, people in Qatar are really nice and friendly and everything was normal today is not a headline right like it's not a headline that any newspaper or or TV show can run and nor is it like a a YouTube worthy video title but it's something that I think I have the opportunity to show a little bit of, a little glimpse into along the way. And that's something that's like very sort of near and dear to my heart that I'm passionate about. Um, that, uh, you know, I feel like I have an opportunity there um, and uh, to, to maybe change the world in some, some small way through sort of showing people this, this lens into, into these um, very different parts of the world and, and different, different societies and cultures. So YouTube is just a media to show people what you want to show them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, YouTube is just the platform, right? And um, 
And, you know, whether it's YouTube now or another platform in the future, like, I'm just really excited to be continuing to tell these types of stories and to sort of bring people along with me on these adventures. Um, and so um, YouTube happens to be the place that um, I have found an audience so far, and, um, and, it, and it continues to be the platform where, uh, where I sort of get the most promotion. So um, where I, I, you know, can, can, <laughs> can get the most new, new people finding out about my work. And so um, it's been really great for me in that regard. And, and um, yeah, if that that changes to another platform in the future, then, then uh, I'll embrace that. But, um, but it's been a great place for telling the stories I want to tell right now. So, yeah. Right now, it seems like there are two main platforms, Twitch and YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, I've looked at doing live streaming. It's a little bit tricky doing, doing, telling some of the stories that I want to tell, um, both from like a connectivity perspective. Um, I don't want to dive too much into the details, but, but I'm, I'm sure people know like connectivity in China is tricky. Um, and, and because I spend a lot of time there is, is why I can't really talk about the details very publicly. Um, uh, but I'm sure you can read online about, about sort of what, what some of the challenges there are. The other challenge um, is one that I can talk about, which is that um, sometimes I'm in areas where there are sensitive things going on, where there are things that not necessarily like the people doing them. It's kind of an open secret that they're happening and all the locals know, but they're not super excited to have them be really publicized. And so um, we're really, really, really careful about uh, making sure that the video that we actually show to the world um, hopefully is not going to get anybody in trouble. Right, it's not going to right. cause any problems in people's lives, and um, that becomes really hard in a live context, right? So we're really relying on sort of the magic of editing to give ourselves the time to really review and scrub and make sure that we're not exposing something we shouldn't um, that will that will harm you know either me or somebody else. And so, um, so that's been my hesitation thus far, but we're we're definitely thinking about it, and um, it's something that like it it definitely is this new medium, and and uh, you know there are some some amazing channels like. Um, uh, like John from Only in Japan, John Dobb from Only in Japan is doing this Only in Japan Go channel that's sort of an IRL streaming that's fantastic. And um, he's, he's like very much opening my eyes to like the storytelling that is possible to do travel stuff, to do stuff out in, in the real world, live streaming over 4G, you know, but then also telling these stories while he's live streaming that are then, then totally watchable afterwards as like their own standalone recorded content. Um, and I think that that type of format is, is fascinating. Um, so definitely got my eye on that. We, we had a YouTuber before, uh, Kim Justice, who is pretty big in the mm. retro era. And uh, we talked about that as soon as you are big on YouTube, you get tons of um, interview requests and strange, uh, you know, promotion offers that are you know, fishy and so on. I mean, yeah. we, for example, we received something about if we want to start selling um, household products oh, I thought to you were gonna our say audience. We were, I thought and you were going to say we were one of the fishy ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, what no. What kind of household uh, products? Uh, I, 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 so I was a bit surprised. Why would why would a game channel on yeah. uh, on Twitter message me about selling a household product? Um, and I wonder how do you actually how do you actually filter out who who you do work with and who you don't yeah. work with? Because now you have one million subscribers, and my first my first thought was like. Oh, Scotty, he's probably not even reading my email. And uh, 24 <laughs> hours later, he actually got an email the next morning. And as I saw, like, wow, well, yeah, sure. We can do yeah. something together. So how, <laughs> how does this 
process work um, yeah. to, to, to grow big as a YouTuber, but not losing, losing it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's been tricky for me. Um, and, it, and it's not to sort of toot my own horn, um, but I have had a little bit of a non-traditional path through that because my biggest video was my first one. Right. And, and so my biggest viral success was literally the first video that I put on the channel. And so um, I had from the very, very first day, I was like, didn't sleep for like several days straight, like talking to reporters. Right. So that was like my entry to, to YouTube was like this crazy viral bonanza. Right. And doing like recorded TV interviews and stuff. Um, and I there were a whole bunch of things that happened in that first week or two that like I had zero experience dealing with. Like we, we got, I got a copyright strike on the, on that video um, within, within a couple weeks, I think on a, on a song that I had paid to license. Like I had gone to a licensing site and paid to license a, um, uh, uh, a stock song. Um, and we got a copyright strike on that. So there was like a ton of things and reporters and things like that. Um, I think you're sort of asking, you're asking specifically, like, who do I do interviews with, and then who do I work with on sponsors? Is that is that kind of well, just just um, you know, the public the public um, mind is like YouTubers. Um, they they only get the best offers. It's easy. Mm. It's it's not really a good job. You know, it's like oh, they just they just <laughs> it in front of a camera, shoot something, and <laughs> and so on. But I think it's much more involved. You have to sort yeah. out. Uh, what you do, what you don't, and and totally. I think this process is totally more complex than what people think it is. I think that's probably true. Let me let me see if I can sort of position it. I, I guess the first thing that I would say um, is at least for my content, I I put a ton of work into creating the videos themselves, right? So I wish that I had a channel. I, some part of me wishes that I had a channel where I would just sit in front of a camera in my bedroom and could bang out you know three videos in an afternoon. Um, <laughs> The the second video that I made about adding the headphone jack back to the iPhone, uh, I that took three months to record, um, and of full time work, and I, I really was kind of working seven day day weeks most of that time because I was racing Apple to their next iPhone announcement. Uh, I wanted to get out before they announced the next iPhone, and I beat them by six days. Um, but I recorded two hundred over two hundred and fifty hours of footage, um, which is insane. That's um, at or above the level that most feature films record, right? Um, in terms of raw footage. And then you then sort of have to dive in and like wade through that and try and find where are the little bits of gold because we took those 250 hours and, and edited those down to 33 minutes, right? Um, which is, is not totally unheard of in the documentary world, but it becomes this giant organization project, right? And then just shooting that, like being on camera for 250 hours is a lot. Um, so I definitely hustle a lot on that front, and I, I feel like sometimes I work a lot harder than than some other folks in the in the YouTube world. Um, but I'm very passionate about what I do, and I, I realize that like to create the types of things that I want to create, that's the kind of work I got to put in, and and I'm okay with that. Um, on the business side, yeah, definitely like there there is way more sort of inbound opportunity and offers and requests than I can possibly ever say yes to, and so. Um, I would say, like on the interview front, I tend to be, I tend to try and um, say yes to everything that I can. Um, it's I, I really like, um, am very grateful for the coverage that I've gotten. That it's it was really a, a a very important part of of growing the channel early on. Um, I had a lot of reporters who were very friendly with me and and really did some nice um, reporting on what I was doing, and and it really brought 
really helped me build the channel early on. And so um, I've always really had a, a philosophy of trying to get back to people as soon as they email me um, for, you know, whether it's, whether it's um, you know, a, a TV channel or whether it's a, a small independent newspaper reporter or whether it's a, whether it's an indie podcast, you know, um, uh, you know, my, particularly right after I release a video, my goal is to respond within like five minutes of them emailing me, um, you know, <laughs> while they're still sitting in front of the computer and I've, I've successfully, um, uh, caught in a few, caught a few reporters off guard, calling them on their, on their number in their, in their email signature, um, right after they sent me an email. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's nice cause you can just kind of do the interview on the spot and they can write their article and move on with their day. Um, because uh, they're they're super busy people. Um, in terms of sponsors, I think that's a tricky one, and that it's one that I've been really learning about, um, and and am still learning about. Um, I I think there's kind of a couple tiers of sponsors that I I sort of think of in my head. Um, uh, there are, or there are a couple of different groups. Let's put it that way. Um, there are sort of the general sponsors that are big brands that everybody's heard of that sponsor lots and lots of podcasts and YouTubers, right? So your Audibles, your Squarespaces, your Men's Dollar Shave Club, your, um, uh, gosh, there's there's a whole bunch of others, right? Um, those, uh, like, I, I just try and find brands there that, that have a decent reputation and that, like, at least modestly fit with my content, right? Um, and then we try and sort of make the dollars work Right, um, and then make sure that like what they want in terms of how they fit in with the content, so that they you know they talk about this this idea of an integration, which is sort of like where does where do we talk about their brand, and and I try and make that um, as non obnoxious as possible and as sort of seamless with the rest of the content while still sort of disclosing that it's a that it's a sponsorship. Like try and not cram a terrible ad down people's throats, right? And so make it something that's that's actually still enjoyable to watch and fits with the rest of the video. Um, and so there's back and forth on that. Um, then there's like specialty brands, right? So I did a sponsored um, uh, factory tour of uh, a PCB factory, of JLC PCB. Um, and I, I already really wanted to make a factory tour of a PCB factory. That was already on my list of like, I want to show people how PCBs are made. I had already toured several PCB factories um, on my own. And um, I thought that would make for really great content for the channel. And so when they approached me, out of the blue and said, hey, would you be interested in doing a factory tour for, for us? It was like an immediate yes, right? Like, yes, let's figure out how to do this, right? And then it was just mostly like discussing with them the details of how that would work, right? Um, and so, you know, there it's just sort of like the, the main decisions are like, can I make an interesting piece of content? And are you going to like, is your product or your service or whatever good so that when people hear about it, through strange parts, they're not going to be disappointed when they actually like purchase it, right? Um, that they're they're going to have a good experience, right? And so that's like, is the product good? Is the customer support good, right? And so, um, you know, particularly for the Chinese brands, it's, it's a little bit more due diligence of like figuring out if I've never heard of them before. Like, we want to sort of learn more about them and make sure that the, the product is good and that we're not recommending something that sucks. Um, uh, and then the third category would be sort of like the low quality offers, and those are the ones that are just shotgunning everybody with like. Hey, we have like, we have a an iPhone charging cable. Do you want to review it? Right, we'll send you one for free. 
like in return for like a ten minute video about our charging cable, and those just immediately go in the in the archive. You know, they get immediately get archived, and I don't ever reply to them. And like, there's, I, it's just not. I don't really do product reviews. It's not really what Strange Parts is, and and certainly not like iPhone charging cables. So you know, unless unless we can do like a cool iPhone cable iPhone charging cable factory tour or something like that. I, I just don't know what to do with them, and they don't have a budget, and it, it's often a low-quality product, and so it's just kind of, you know, we yeah. Yeah, kind of ignore them. Um, I have gotten, like, some really out-of-left-field offers like you guys have. I, my favorite one was, um, a, uh, was makeup, like skincare. <laughs> uh, it was a, a dry-brushing set, and, um, yeah. Um, I we had a very interesting back and forth. I actually did reply to that one. It was like, have you looked at my channel at all? Like, how do you think this would be a good fit? And then the other thing was like, they didn't even want they didn't want to pay me, and they didn't even want to send me the dry brushing kit for free. They wanted to like give me a discount code so that I could oh, get like geez. a discounted dry brushing set. And I was just like, I don't I don't understand what planet you're on that you think this would like interest me. Um, so yeah. That's that's the brief the brief rundown of how I'm thinking about sponsorships right now. Yeah, um, I mean when 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 we approach people before we approach people we actually discuss about it and I I remember a uh, Jay and I we discussed how about how about you Scotty? Yeah. And um, may, maybe maybe AJ can explain a bit how how his memory um, how his mind goes with with the topic of broaden audience and uh, topics because I remember when we started this people were telling us like don't try to get too much out of the retro focus because mm. then you will not um, target your main audience and people they... will get bored and you will lose uh, readers or subscribers. Were they, were they telling us that? Yeah, we had some feedbacks like that, you know, and um, yeah. Um, I don't know what what do you think, AJ? What is your um, opinion about that? I I don't I don't see an issue with broadening the our 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 scope because um, it, you know if there is some kind of if it's something completely outside of the of the realm of what we do, then that's that's one thing. Like like you said when you know, when we were looking when we were talking about you, you know there was suddenly like this this retro pinball thing or arcade thing. And it's like, okay, that falls within our, our jurisdiction. We yeah. can, you know, we can kind of use that to twist the ground. If it was something completely different. And I feel like we've gotten some offers for interviews from people that have nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Yeah. That we, it's, and it's not even a matter of like, you know, it's content that the audience wouldn't find interesting. It's content. I don't know anything about. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, you can't sit down and have a discussion with with some people because it's like I have, we're, it, it's totally in in such huge different things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think the thing that I think a lot about when I think about what content, what videos to make, right? And I have a billion and one ideas for mm -hmm. for videos to make, right? But we, you know, most of them don't get made. Um, and, and one of the challenges for me is like. I sometimes know that there's an interesting story in something, mm -hmm. right? But I but I worry that I won't be able to bring the audience along with me right. into that. Like I know that if I can get them to start watching, I think I'll be able to retain them. Right? It's how do I get them to start watching? 
right? And right. so, so I think you know, particularly, and this might be a, like a little bit of a YouTube specific problem. Um, I, I think about how do I sell the video, right? Because really, all I get to to convince somebody to click on a video is like the thumbnail and the title and like their past experience of strange parts or strange parts' reputation, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not quite at the point where people will click on any. I mean, my, the core core strange parts hardcore fans will click on anything, right? But there's but there's a much broader community that like will pick and choose topics, right? right? And they may not even necessarily have like watched many strange parts videos before. And I think those people are the ones I'm constantly thinking about of like, is this close enough to sort of the core of strange parts to like to like bring them in, or how do I present this in a way? That like is gonna be gonna appeal to them, right? So like like one example is like I'd love to do some like textiles and clothing stuff um, because I think manufacturing and making clothing I, I learned to sew um, as a young kid um, probably around the same same time as I learned to solder. Um, my mom and I would make make Halloween costumes together, and I I learned to knit and weave and and uh, and all these other sort of textile arts when I was quite young, and I think that stuff's fascinating and like very. Um, very closely related to sort of a lot of the other types of making and and, and um, engineering and stuff, and and I, it tickles the same part of my brain, right? right, that, right. that you know things like electronics and, and woodworking, metalworking do, um, and I think the idea of like going to, uh, you know, a big sewing operation or a big weaving operation or a big knitting operation, like a big industrial. Uh, operation is fascinating to me, and I think a lot of people would be interested. But I don't know if, like, if I lead with the topic of, like, you know, how shirts are made, <laughs> am I going to be able to bring my existing audience along with me? And so that's that's always like the concern. And it sounds like that's sort of like where you guys are at too, right? Is like mm. how far is how how broad is too broad, or how like how far out of left field can you be and still bring your audience along with you? Right. One of your videos was, for example, about paintings, original paintings, not yeah. copies, made in China. And my first thought was like, okay, I'm not really interested in art and stuff. But then I watched it and it was totally fascinating. I was like, okay, I'm glad that I watched this because this is one of the most unique videos I've ever seen, you know. Because oh, I'm really people, glad you liked it. Um, yeah, yeah, because people always connect China with not creative, only copying, copycats, as you say. It, it's just low quality and nobody gives a shit, you know. Just rip off customers from abroad uh, China. And uh, then you showed a different side. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is interesting. Yeah, so you well, give thanks. a new angle to, to China in a way. Thanks. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you liked it. I that I've been wanting to make that video for like for like probably two years now, and um, it finally sort of rose to the top of the stack. And and it and it was honestly like one of the ones that I was worried about of like how do I pitch this in a way that like is going to convince people to watch it because I know I know a lot of my audience isn't you know doesn't consider themselves interested in art, but like but I know I know the details of this art village are so fascinating and like the way this whole economy works. Like people are going to be, if I can get people to watch, I think they'll, I think they'll be along for the ride once I can kind of suck them in. And so, mm. and so, yeah, there was a lot of thought put into like, what can we do on the thumbnail? Uh, we actually like made two custom PCB, custom art PCBs, um, circuit boards, uh, which we didn't end up using because in the thumbnail they didn't look like circuit boards; they look like art. <laughs> so I had to like, at the very last minute, I said, "This is just not, we're literally out there shooting." thumbnails out in the middle of the markets and I said oh my god this is not going to work like we're just looking on the on the camera review screen 
Like these, this is not ob- not obviously PCB, and I had to run inside the markets and go buy a broken motherboard from somebody and use that instead <laughs> um, <laughs> to try and communicate that that idea of like this is also about electronics. It's just not, it's not just about painting, and we're actually using painting as as a lens to look at a more more complicated manufacturing ecosystem, right? Um, yeah. I, I have to admit, what what is different with approaching you compared to other guests we had? I was asked by your manager, Ben, um, if we can go further after this interview. And like like you coming to Germany and talking about factoring and so on. And I said, I said well, I'm not really knowing factories, but I'm... I, I know people who, who are big in this arcade repair and um, retro repair and uh, conserving things. Because what many people outside of the European Union don't know is that in 2015, there is um, video games and computer games and old computers and so on are now part of cultural goods. So com- um, mm. together with TV shows, series, books... So now the European um, Union is pushing millions in restoring video games and preserving them for the next generation. That's so, super cool. So I think I think that would be something that we could work with together mm. if you are interested. Yeah. Because I know the head um, and HA know, knows him too HA because is. we made an interview with them. But, but I don't live um, in Germany. So yeah. So, um, but but we have Skype, fortunately, and uh, they made a museum for arcade and pinball machines, and they are actually experts for mechanical pinball oh, machines. You know that that in other countries or other places in the world are just put to the trash. Yeah, you know, right. right. And I think I think that would be a topic that has to be brought uh, outside of Europe to also yeah. make. Um, countries that that are not part of Europe aware of how important it is to um, to preserve video yeah. games, computer games, and so on. Totally. Um, be, because um, this all started with, with a Frankfurt Film Museum, where we had an exhibition where AJ and I also took interviews with people from the game industry and cosplay and movie industry. And... Um, the, they actually spend millions on preserving discs and and motherboards that are destroyed by acid and so on. I yeah. don't know if that is something you are interested, but I, I think, think so. that's really yeah. something that should be covered in a way. Because yeah. if you if you leave Europe, people only know about archive.org having all the ROM images to no, download, geez. and that's it. Yep. Nobody is interested in the hardware, you yeah. know, in yeah. the actual machine. And and that is why some some software some games is unfortunately lost because you know the graphic ROM isn't was never dumped or something. Yeah. You know? Do you know about? Um, uh, I visited when I was just in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. I visited uh, Small Change Arcade. Do you know Matt Matt at Small Change Arcade? Have you heard of that? No, no. But so, um, we interviewed Richie Knuckles, who is pretty big in America about arcade restore. Okay, so, so Matt's doing something slightly different, which is Matt is taking broken arcade game, arcade cabinet boards from original arcade cabinets, and he's then he's, he's fixing and restoring the boards, 
and then building replica cabinets that are 40% of the original size mm. of the oh, original cabinet, putting the original boards back in, getting a new CRT, and then building them out as these little mini, like, mini <laughs> cabinets. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Um, and they're super cool. I mean, he's putting, like, hundreds of hours into each one, and so they're, like, you know, they're primo, like, all the details are correct kind of thing. I mean, it's not... It's not a perfect scaled-down version, right? Because, like, the controls still have to be the same size. There are limitations on the CRT. you got to get the board to fit in just right kind of thing. But the, in spirit, they are, they are 100% right. accurate. Um, and so, yeah, it was really interesting hanging out with him. We went to um, uh, Free Gold Watch in, in the Hate in San Francisco, which is a um, pinball uh, arcade and screen printing shop. Um, that has like a whole bunch of independent operators um, coming in and out. And they curate a whole bunch of games across sort of the spectrum of of you know pinball eras, from like the the um, you know super modern sort of big big you know video screen uh, mm-hmm. games um, out of um, oh, what's the big U.S. pinball manufacturer um, Stern 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 right. So they have Stern. a bunch of like Jackson new pinball Stern is also big. Yeah. Yeah. So they like have everything from like brand new Stern machines to like old mechanical stuff, and then like super wacky stuff. Like, do you know the game um, Ice Cold Beer? Of course, it's so one they have of it our I- most played arcade machines in the museum. <laughs> oh, okay, awesome. So they have and it one always there, breaks. And I it got always breaks. It always yeah, breaks that... because it has this wire that that is that is this bar balanced on where the ball is balanced on. It's always breaking. This wire mechanism is always breaking. Uh, they always have yeah. to fix it every single time. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. Uh, I looking at this thing, I was like, oh my god, like this is this is so mechanical. <laughs> like it looks, you know, yeah. it looks yeah. ripe for for breaking. But it's such a it's such a unique game design. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's so different from anything I'd ever played. Um, and so, yeah, um, that, that kind of stuff definitely gets me excited. You mentioned um, corporations and brands, and you started working on the um, rights to repair movement from iFixit. Yeah, yeah. And, and how did that actually happen? So um, iFixit approached me... We we've, we were sort of talking back and forth a little bit, um, I guess early on. I don't know. I we exchanged emails and then and then um, so so Kelsey Kelsey emailed me and um, uh, from iFixit um, and said you know hey like uh, we really should have reached out sooner like let's connect let's do something together um, and I had been wanting to reach out to them for a while and I was just super busy and so. It happened that, like, right when she reached out, I was about to release a video about iPhone. I forget which one. Um, and uh, I said, "Well, hey, I've got this video coming up." Oh, I think it was. I think it was a video about how uh, how to make your own iPhone. Because uh, I had done done a video about how I made my own iPhone. Is that <laughs> when you put I, I got my I got my modified because oh, awesome. this video oh, on a red front. Oh, nice! How <laughs> I haven't actually seen red fronts before. That's pretty awesome. AliExpress. Huh. I have not seen those in the markets. Usually the stuff in AliExpress I see in the markets first. Um, I've not seen that before. That's super cool. It's an iPhone 7 Plus, and and so I went to a third-party repair store as soon as my two years warranty was over. The next yeah. day I was in the store, and they said, like, wow, red iPhone cover, front, never seen that before. Awesome. 
That's so, awesome. So from this day, whenever I go to the store, I'm like, oh, you, you are this red iPhone guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that, because I, I don't actually know. Did you have to buy an entire screen? Uh, no, it's just, it's just the glass with the frame. And so did they do the lamination in their shop then? Yes. Because the, yes. Oh, they did. Okay. So yeah. that's not super common, at least in the US, um, yeah. for shops to be doing their own LCD lamination. Um, they, do, really they, only... they, they bought a special machine for, um, well, they first used a wire to separate um, the, the, the um, glass with the screen. And then they, they said it will take three days. And then they, they made it in their big, um, well, um, how you say it, garage? Mm -hmm. In their, yeah. And they, they just said they put it together. It wasn't easy, awesome. they said. Um, it yeah. was the first time they did it, but they did oh. it perfect. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, the guys in the markets in Shenyang do it all the time, and it's actually not very much equipment that you need. You need, yeah, sort of three things. You need the, the vacuum heater thing to do the initial separation on the lamination. Um, you need a press to sort of get everything all lined up um, for the optically clear adhesive, the, the glue in between, and then you need the vacuum chamber to remove the bubbles. And um, I'm surprised that more people in the U.S. aren't doing it because, I, I don't know, I've looked at the economics of it. A sheet of glass in Shenzhen will cost you a dollar or two. Um, for the front glass, and uh, yeah. and the OCA page is cheap. Five, paid five dollars. Yeah, that, for that's the glass in the front. A very fair price with with uh, export and customs and shipping and all that. Um, yeah, and the glass is same sure. same quality as the original Apple. So, mm. no no that's problem awesome. about it. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I'm surprised I haven't seen more colors because that that color is literally just like painted onto the back side of the glass. Um, so. <laughs> Painting a new color, it should be trivial for them. There were orange and dark blue and huh. violet and purple on eBay, but eBay um, removed all the offers. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So yeah. I guess Apple or somebody got yeah, interfering. I That's, this is an area where I, I start to not understand tr trademark law, or I, I don't know what, I, I, I guess it's sort of like, I've been just sort of thinking about it as customs, right? Because, like, okay, so those that glass is a sheet of glass with some color printed on it, right? Yeah. It doesn't have it doesn't have a logo anywhere, right? <laughs> I don't. Maybe it's covered by some like weird patent or like design patent, but like I don't really understand what the legalities are that are giving Apple, if it is in fact Apple that sort of got that stuff removed, which I imagine it is. You know, either directly or indirectly. I don't understand what the mechanism they're using is for that, um, or why that is like correct or just. <laughs> like, yeah, like, well, why it even matters? It. Why does it even matter? It's a, well, yeah, like right. you said, it's a piece exactly. of glass. Exactly. And so the analogy that I like to use for this stuff is I like to use cars, right? Of like, is it acceptable to make like an aftermarket windshield for a Toyota pickup truck? Right. And like most people you would ask would be like, yeah, I don't, like I don't see possibly why that would be a problem. OK, so like what's different about that versus like making replacement glass for an iPhone screen? Yeah. Right. Well, you um, look at you look at, you know, using the car analogy, you know, Jeep outright encourages you to change everything on the vehicle. Right. Like, yeah, you want to change that? Go ahead. Yeah. You want to want to rip out the entire suspension? Whatever. That's great. Right. You and, just spend and, like, millions of dollars to engineer that, it. Right, like I, I understand that there would be a point at which they would say, you know what, we don't really want to support a warranty on a vehicle you've replaced right. half the parts on. Right. But like, fair enough. I think people who 
who I think people understand that, right? I don't think there's a big dispute over like warranty, right? Mm-hmm. But now you have Apple saying things like, "Oh, well, people are going to hurt themselves <laughs> replacing their own battery on their iPhone," which is like just patently false, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, or they or they you know they they say things like, um, uh, "Oh, you know, it's it's not something that can be done by your average person, right? It requires specialized expertise," which is also just like patently false. Right, which was sort of where the the uh, the campaign that we did um, for for I Fix It called I'm a Genius came from, right? Which is like you know they they basically at, we would work together on a previous video and then and then Kelsey emailed me and said, hey, um, we're doing this campaign, uh, basically talking about like uh, people's repair stories of like repairing your own devices and and really encouraging other people to give that a try. Um, under sort of this label of like Apple says that only geniuses at the Genius Bar should be able to repair repair an iPhone, and and therefore if I've repaired an iPhone, like does that make me a genius? And I was like, yeah. I love it, right? Because like <laughs> I I thought that when you know before I started this iPhone project, I had never opened up a, a, a smartphone before, and I sort of saw it as this like black box, this magical device that was like mm-hmm. indivisible, right? But at the same time, I had like built my own desktop computer. I had you know repaired laptops. Like I had opened other stuff, right? Uh, It it wasn't like I was I was fundamentally afraid of using a screwdriver and opening up an electronic device. But somehow, like smartphones felt different. And then when I sort of went down this rabbit hole of like trying to build my own my own iPhone, I realized like this thing is no different than a desktop computer. It is just smaller and slightly more fragile. Right, like you have to be more careful, and you have to like put your eyes closer to it to see the screws. Right, yeah. but in every other way, like this is just a bunch of bunch of connectors that like press fit together. It's a bunch of screws and brackets, uh, you know, and some like pop fit fittings. Like it's it's almost the same mechanics mm-hmm. as a desktop computer, uh, just in a different form factor. Um, and so, I yeah, I don't know. I I, I think I have gotten really passionate about sort of showing people behind behind the scenes there and going like, hey, these devices aren't magic, right? They they you can pop them open. You can modify them, right? Mm-hmm. Like there there is this whole world here. And and we have this weird uh superstition maybe around them that that uh that somehow they're different from the rest of the devices in our lives. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think Apple and other manufacturers have kind of played that up a little bit um, in ways that, yeah, I don't think they're beneficial. Well, <laughs> Apple has gone full on with it because even the new the new laptops that they've made, you can't do anything with really. Everything is just soldered on. And mine, my, I've got an Apple laptop, and it's you know nine years old at this point because it was the last one that they made where you could do it. I got the base model, I upgraded the memory, I, I took out the DVD drive and put in a second hard drive, you know, all this stuff to it, like immediately so- on getting it. So in Shenzhen, that's not a problem, right? right? The fact that everything's soldered on, right? Like people have just just developed techniques for desoldering that stuff and replacing it. Hmm. Right? Um, and so, and that, and they're just sort of the average repair technician in Shenzhen is like significantly above most of the rest of the world. There are <laughs> there are exceptions to that, um, but they but they have just not really seen that as a barrier. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so really, I mean, I think I think to some extent, sort of right to repair comes down to. Um, Come down comes down to like what are people going to get legally punished for, right? Right, um, right. And that that actually like we do have the tools to do do some of this repair. Maybe not, um, you know, maybe not at home, but like 
it is still like available to third party repair. We just need to make sure to not criminalize mm-hmm. uh, either the people doing those repairs or access to the access to the parts or the ability that for people to create replacement parts. Right. Um, you know, because that is also like a huge issue, right? Of like mm-hmm. third parties creating these things. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, actually, being on the retro boat, I actually got the opposite problem. To find people who still know how to repair um, CRT TVs and all that stuff. Yeah. That is more an issue for me. To yeah. find people who actually can do it, you know. Because you can get the parts from eBay if you need to. Yeah. That's not a yeah. problem. But knowledge is being lost after yeah. all those years, I have to admit, unfortunately. Yeah. Matt at, at Small Change Arcade was saying the same thing, that he's having to having to tune all his own CRTs and, you know... I. I didn't. I didn't understand it in full depth, but you know, chokes and aligning things, and you probably know a lot yeah. more than I. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounded pretty gnarly, and then and then also you've sort of got high voltage in the mix, right? So, right. Uh, so you can really hurt yourself there, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, they're not. I mean, it 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 sounds like even just to get CRTs now, like they aren't they aren't a dime a dozen, right? You can't order them new. You've got to no. find, yeah, you know. Yeah, that's you have to true. Find someone that that's has the right one. Yeah, yeah. So, so I wonder. Actually, good that you mentioned it. Um, if you do your modification, how many tries did you have, and um, how many times you wasted your stuff? You put yeah. it in the bin because you destroyed it. Um, I yeah. think, for example, about this one where you did your own uh, contactless charging mod for the iPhone. Yeah. And you were you were almost giving up on it. I was like, okay, yeah. now this this video is ending nasty. And in the last second, um, you did it like like Apple did in the presentation. Like, there's one last thing. <laughs> I got it working. <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, I want to be really clear. Uh, I didn't actually design that circuitry. Right, that was designed by by this Chinese guy Yeka, um, who uh, is. Um, is actually a fan of strange parts and and contacted me and and he has a booth in the markets and um and brilliant brilliant sort of iPhone hacker um, had been working on this for a year and so really I was trying to tell his story as much as I could but also the the story of me trying to get this thing working right and try this out and it, and it turned out like it it still very much was sort of in alpha uh, his design was very much in alpha and and while very clever. Uh, the way he was sort of interfacing that board with the rest of the phone um, was still needed tweaks here and there to be to be um, user friendly. Uh, on that project, I didn't have to throw away too much, but there was a lot of sort of back and forth with Yekka of like me trying stuff, going home and sort of sweating over it, and then going back to the markets and, and going, Yekka, I cannot get this to work. Like, <laughs> you know, and sort of him giving me, you know, giving me a new part here or there, or at one point we thought maybe the battery was bad. So, like, the, the thing about the markets, though, is like, you know, we thought while we were sort of testing in his booth that maybe we had a bad battery, and he literally just leans across the aisle to the booth in front of him and says, hey, can you, can you loan me a battery for a minute, you know? And, and so the, <laughs> the efficiencies of being in the markets are not to be underestimated. Um, it's you are steps away from kind of any parts that you need, um, and, uh, and that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, but we, I guess we went... I ended up building two phones for that, and we probably went through a handful of um, of like little PC, flex PCB pigtails um, that he had designed for his wireless charger thing. Um, probably not too many parts for that. 
the one that I, I think the two that I went through the most parts on were the the one that I I really spent quite a bit of money on parts was the headphone jack, um, video, and I went through, gosh, probably six or eight iPhone screens, which um you know we were using I was using genuine OEM screens because of like very specific part tolerances, um, uh, and those were I think at the time I was paying a hundred dollars a piece for those, Ooh. um, and so that that started adding up. I went through a handful probably three logic boards, maybe more than that, three or four logic boards, and those are a couple hundred dollars a piece. Um, and then, you know, stacks and stacks and stacks of iPhone backs. And, uh, and so, and then, the, oh, the other thing that I was spending a lot on was um, the lightning to headphone adapter, the little dongle that, oh, that Apple yeah. makes. Because I was taking the insides of those out to get at the, like, lightning, lightning and DAC board that they have it lives inside of the lightning connector itself it's a pcb that sits sandwiched in there and i was like disassembling these things to get out this little tiny pcb so that i could like solder it onto my pcb as like a daughter board and then and then you know shove the whole thing into the phone and um i was buying at first i was buying those at the apple store for i forget 10 or 20 bucks a piece something like that um and i was buying like I think I went in and bought you know, three or five at once. It's in the video. I, I bought a bunch, and, and the lady says, why do you need so many? And I was like, I, was like, I really don't want to tell her what I'm doing. Uh, so I just said that I kept breaking them, um, which is technically a lie. Um, but, okay. but I also wasn't using them quite as, as, as Apple had intended. Um, and then I discovered that actually I could get them in the markets um, for much cheaper. Well, so, so I first looked at the markets and I found a whole bunch of knockoff ones, um, but they didn't have the same capabilities that the original ones did. Um, they, uh, and some of them like didn't work at all, right? You would, they would work for like a minute or two and then the phone would brick them or they mm. would, uh, somehow they would stop working. Um, there's some crazy things. So I, uh, we're getting into like serious iPhone nerdery here, but um, the f- phone can do a firmware update on the chip inside a lightning connector mm-hmm. um, and, and potentially like can get that firmware from the internet, which is a crazy thing, um, which means theoretically, if you can find a backdoor in the reverse direction of a lightning connector, like a lightning device that plugs into the phone, if you could find some sort of vulnerability uh, for the, the connector to, to then break into the phone, you now have the possibility to create a worm that is replicated via like iPhone charging cables or, mm. I, or like wow. lightning devices, which would be bananas, right? Um, uh, but regardless, I, I found a source of genuine lightning to headphone adapters in the markets that were like, I think I was paying seven bucks, something like that um, for them. Uh, I, I remember them being like 75% of the, of the original price. And I, most sellers in the markets, if you ask the right question, you will get an honest answer. And so I asked her, where, where are you getting these from? And she said, oh, well, like it took a little while to figure out. But I figured out that they were parted out from, so 
there's a whole smuggling operation. There's a very large scale smuggling operation that smuggles <laughs> phones from, and it's not just one operation, it's a lot of operations, that smuggle phones from Hong Kong into mainland China because mainland China has tax, right? Has pretty significant sales tax and Hong Kong has none, right? So the, the price difference between buying a phone in a, an official Apple store in Shenzhen and an official Apple store in Hong Kong, which are 20 miles apart, but are separated by the Hong Kong mainland border is like $400. Right, four hundred dollars more expensive, right? So that's like a really nice margin for somebody to go down and buy phones in Hong Kong and then bring them up into Shenzhen, right? But when they do that, they generally unbox them, right? Because they don't want to be bringing the whole iPhone boxes across. And the ways that they bring them across are, are bananas. They range from like duct taping seventy phones to people's body, and someone got caught at the border doing that. The photo is hilarious. Um, at, to like running zip lines across the the canal or the river. Um, from Hong Kong, and they were originally using a crossbow to do that, and then they upgraded to a drone, um, and they got busted. Um, but they were running baskets across the zip line, like baskets Jeez. filled with, you know, 100 iPhones or whatever, right? And they were running baskets, you know, multiple baskets, right? Um, uh, and then I, I'm sure there are a bunch of other creative ways, but um, these are just the ones that have sort of made the press in, in the past couple of years. Uh, but regardless, when you unbox these iPhones, you're left with all of the accessories in the box. And one of the accessories that they were shipping iPhones with was this little headphone adapter, right? And so those little headphone adapters then get sold separately in the markets as mm. this sort of gray market economy for genuine headphone adapters if you're someone who needs one of those. Similarly, like the genuine charger, the genuine charging cable, the, you know, the headphones, etc. That one, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I found a lady. I have, I have a source for those. Um, and I probably <laughs> bought like 10 or 20 from her in the end. I would go and buy them like five or 10 at a time. And, uh, and I, I don't know what she thought I was doing with them. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's totally interesting. Um, so how is it um, if, if you are in China... Is it like um, you have to be careful to not getting like um, what is famous here, exploding batteries, cheap no. knockoff stuff, or is no, that not a problem? Not really. No, I've never seen, I've never seen or heard that be a problem in the markets. I'm sure it does happen, but it's not like I've ever been in the markets and somebody's had a battery on fire. Um, I don't think it's much of an issue. Uh, I mean. The, I, I have two data points for you. So, so the one data point is like, I have been going around these markets extensively for the past three years and I've never once seen a fire, right? I've never once, and I've never once heard of a problem, right? And like, uh, so it's, if it happens, it's not very common. That being said, there used to be buckets of sand in the doorway to one of the markets that sold not iPhone batteries, but like the general like silver lithium pouch batteries that you see in like remote control cars and stuff. Um, and that was for putting out lithium fires, right? So, okay. so that's the thing. Um, the other thing is that when you fly out of a Chinese airport, um, they are really real, they really check battery banks very, very closely. And specifically, you are not allowed to have battery banks that are not um, very clearly labeled with their capacity um, that is, like, very clearly made by the manufacturer. So there is some, like, quality bar that Chinese, you know, the equivalent of, like, TSA, Chinese Airport Security, mm -hmm. is enforcing on battery banks, right? Um, they are not very excited about you flying with your 
your very random market find of a, of a <laughs> you know, cobbled together Shanjai power bank, um, which is probably all for the best. Uh, so this problem of low quality parts is not a problem if you are living in China. Oh, it's a problem. I just don't think exploding batteries is a problem. <laughs> well, that right? was so, just an example, you know. Um, yeah. I we mean, can, there so are other YouTubers. About that. Yeah. yeah, we can definitely talk more broadly about quality in China. Um, yeah, that was my have, intention, actually. I have actually. about that. Okay, okay, so I have opinions about quality in China. So... I think China has a reputation for low quality and low quality parts and low quality stuff that is not totally deserved, right? Because, I mean, one of the examples that people use for like really high quality electronics is iPhones, right? And, and iPads, which are manufactured in China, right? <laughs> right so right. so clearly like, I mean, yes, they're designed in the US, but all of the manufacturing that's done is done in China. And, and it's, um, so, so I think that's a very clear sign that like China is capable of making really high quality stuff. Um, the problem is that consumers, including Western consumers, are really cheap, <laughs> right? They don't <laughs> like spending a lot for things, which means that there's a high incentive to drive the price of manufacturing on things down. Um, and you know, Chinese manufacturers, in order to win business, really have focused a lot over the past 20 years on how to drive costs down in manufacturing, and that affects quality. So the, I think one of the things that everybody that I know that either does manufacturing or does sourcing in China, um, or even just sort of people who are experienced tourists buying things in the market has realized is that you don't necessarily want to shop around for the lowest price because you're going to get quality that matches that. And so really you want to be clear on sort of what you want and do you want something that's super, super low quality, in which case, yeah, go to the bottom, you know, bottom of the barrel pricing. Um, or do you want something that's sort of middle of the road quality, in which case you're going to probably play a middle of the road price, or do you want something really premium, in which case you're going to look for sort of like a recognizable brand from a like reputable store from a reputable seller, right? Kind of thing. Um, the nice thing about China is that it caters to an extremely wide spectrum of price points and qualities, right? And so you can get anything anywhere along that spectrum and, and, um, and, there is very much this attitude in the markets of it is up to the buyer to be responsible for quality. And I think in the West, we are much more used to that sort of being the responsibility of the brand or the retailer mm -hmm. um, of, of sort of saying, like, if I buy something at the shop or I buy something that's made by this manufacturer that has this, at least has this manufacturer's brand on it. And often they're not making themselves. They're having somebody else put their brand on on it. They're having the factory put their brand on it. Um, then I can be guaranteed that this is at least of this quality, right? And those those uh, brands will spend a lot of time doing quality assurance and quality control. In China, and particularly in Huashang Bay, it is you as the end buyer, or if you're buying wholesale as the buyer, right, that is entirely responsible for that. And generally, you can ask questions of the seller, and generally, you will get honest answers. Uh, there are some exceptions. They're, they're like, if you're buying memory, you're not going to get an honest answer sometimes, um, right? I, I never buy SD cards in the market. Uh, it's, it's the one thing that I don't buy in the market um, uh, because they're often very mislabeled and, and doing funky things. But outside of that, almost everything that I ask, uh, you know, of like, is this part genuine, right? Uh, oh, no, 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 this is a copy part, right? Like, oh, what, you know, what I, I have had people 
that have steadfastly refused to sell me something because they were adamant that it was not high enough quality for export. It was not high enough. It was for China only, and it was not high enough quality for, for foreign buyers. Right. And I had to be adamant that like I understood that it was a low quality part and that it was cheap and that I didn't care because I was going to break it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I actually, that I really wanted it. <laughs> right. Um, actually, um, it's interesting because I think I can relate to that. In 2011, 2012, there was this Dingo Digital Company who did an emulator, portable emulator, for playing all kinds of video game consoles on the go. And there were two versions of this 8320 uh, emulator, one for the Chinese market and one for abroad. Yeah. And um, you you wouldn't you wouldn't get the other version because the buttons would be clumsy and so on and you know it would not be very high quality. Well, they said okay, this is not going outside of China no matter what. Um, and so and, was it was it a wildly different price as well? Yeah, well, like fifty fifty euros difference. That's pretty substantial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I said okay, I'm not going. Um, a deal extreme and get the cheaper Chinese version. Yeah. I get a better get the export version because there are there are no is better quality control. But it's interesting because I wonder would Chinese really like to get low quality products? No. If it no, was cheaper? It. No, they hate <laughs> it. Um but sometimes I mean it depends, right? Like it depends on sort of how wealthy you are, right? So so well, wealthy Chinese that have lots of disposable income really want original brands. They really want the top quality that they can find. Um, and the people that buy like low quality copies, particularly like like let's take Beats headphones, right? You can buy lots of like copy Beats headphones, right? <laughs> the people that are buying example. the really cheap cheap Beats headphones are people who can't afford the originals, right? But you know they think they're cool or whatever. They want a pair of headphones. So there, I mean, it's sort of this, I think there's this aspect of copying and buying copy goods that is brand aspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I aspire to be someone who can afford a pair of Beats headphones or who can afford an iPhone, right? And everybody knows that you don't have a pair of original Beats headphones. Like, it's, you know, some of the copies are really bad and, like, you can just tell, <laughs> right? Um, and, and the person buying them knows they're not original, Right, but it's but it's still like it's it's that image that that brand portrays. They want to be part of that lifestyle. They they aspire to be someone that could have that, right? And so buying the copy is like a step in that right direction, right? Does that does that make sense? Well, that actually hurts the original cast, uh, the original manufacturer. Oh. No, it doesn't though. It doesn't. Because they, no, because they couldn't have afforded to buy a real pair anyway. Okay, so you haven't lost a sale, right? It's, you know, someone who's buying a pair of $5, you know, knockoff Beats headphones because they can't afford a more expensive pair of, of headphones is not going to be uh, an original, is, is not going to go buy an original pair. Like, that's not the alternative. The alternative is buying a no-name pair of headphones, right? But by owning that cheap copy pair, when that person then later gets more money, they often aspire to then own the real thing. Wow. Right, you and so I start working for Apple to convince them. <laughs> <laughs> I, would love to, I would love to convince them of this. I mean, I, I, this is not purely my idea, um, but it is one that resonates with me. Um, I've, I've heard other people sort of espouse this. I, I really do think 
there is a case to be made that perhaps low quality copy goods um, that are copying other brands are not entirely detrimental to those brands. Um, and it's it's obviously very complex, and and I think it I think it gets really complicated when you get into areas like like um, clothing and fashion and things where the 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 line between what is a high quality copy and what is an original good get very 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 thin, and um and and then I think there's you know there's much more of a case to be made of, and you can get copy goods that are so good that. Uh, one, they're they're relatively indistinguishable, and two, the price is not very different, right? Because they're using. I mean, that's the other thing, right? So, like the the fifty dollar difference between the two copies of the of the game emulator you were talking about, um, probably like a lot of that fifty dollars go, goes towards either better parts or better material, right? And so when you, it's not just a matter of quality control. It's actually like they're putting more metal into it, or they're putting a high quality higher quality part into it which just drives up the cost of the of the bill of materials right the bomb right which ultimately just sort of affects that top line price right, right. Uh, and so as copies you know non-authorized copies as as copies get higher and higher quality the price is naturally going to rise and then the ceiling of that price is like the price of buying the genuine thing right <laughs> and so you there is this weird place that you get to where you know there's copies that are like almost indistinguishable but they're like 75 percent of the of the original price right and that's i think the part that's the place where i think the the big brands are are hurting right and that that's where where they stand to lose uh stand to lose money right um I wonder, you focused a lot on iPhones. I wonder, what about Android phones or, or let's, let's say, tablets and so on? Yeah, yeah I, I don't have... I'm planning to expand. Um, I, mean, I mean, AJ is the best example. He actually switched from Apple to Android, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. So Interesting. Haven't looked back. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really have... I, I'm not... Contrary to... to uh, to, to popular belief, I'm not much of a like an Apple fanboy. Um, I, oh, I, mean, really? I, do happen, I do happen to carry an iPhone and I do use Mac laptops, but I, I'm just I guess I'm not very fanatical about it. Um, I uh, it's just kind of what I've always used and it works for me and it's mm -hmm. fine. Um, but I'm not I guess I don't have any like philosophical opposition to Android. There, there are some practical reasons why. I started with iPhone, and then there are some also some separate practical reasons as to why I've continued. Um, I would like to do some Android stuff at some point. Uh, the The reasons why I chose iPhone originally, I think, are twofold. Um, one is that uh, iPhone is a very recognizable brand, and so I think "How I Made My Own iPhone" is a very different video title than "How I Made My Own Smartphone," um, and I think, and so I, I kind of you know, chose the iPhone wrap because of that. I was really worried they were going to sue me. Um, so I'm glad they didn't. Thank you, Apple. Um, yeah. uh, so that was one thing. Uh, the other um, thing is that there are more iPhone parts available in the markets. Um, yeah. And I think there are two reasons for that. Um, one is that a lot of iPhone manufacturing is done in China and specifically at least used to be done in Shenzhen. I think a lot of it's moving up north um, to Shijiang, I think. Um, and Brazil, Apple actually made manufacturers in Sao Paulo some years ago. But is that just for the Brazilian market? 
I don't know, but uh, okay. but I know that that yeah. they had some problems with the Brazilian government because mm. they tried to to put the same rules for the workers they did in China and. Brazilian government said, no, 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 you can't mm. do that. You have to give mm. people break, enough free time, mm. holidays, and all that stuff. Interesting. It, that's a whole other discussion. We can talk about, about factories and workers um, later. I have opinions about that, too. Um, uh, but the, regardless, they have moved, uh, they have now have, I don't know, over 100,000 people up in Shijiang. I, I think it's Shijiang. Um, they're called iPhone City now, um, which is like a thousand miles north of, of Shenzhen. Um, but regardless, there there are just like there is a lot of sort of parts floating through the economy in 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 Shenzhen. Um, the other thing is that there is, uh, in terms of phone models, right? So all of in phones, all of the parts for each individual model are all different, right? So like if you're buying. A battery, you have to buy the one for the iPhone 6S, not the iPhone 6S Plus, right? Or And not the iPhone 6, right? Uh, and that goes for, like, all of the screws, all of the brackets, all of, you know, the cameras, right? Everything is custom for that phone, right? right. Um, which is, I think, largely due to the fact that these phones are so small and they're trying to cram so much stuff in that they have to kind of, like, move everything around every, every phone duration. Um, which drives drives strange parts fans nuts because they would they would love it to be possible to like upgrade their phones right and to and to interchange parts. Um, unfortunately, that that is not as simple as I wish it was or or as as they wish it was. Um, With so, one exception, by the way, I there are a lot of people who put uh, iPhone Seven Plus um, batteries into iPhone Six Plus. Because they okay. have a different yeah. position of the flex cable, connector cable. Yeah. But if you if you if you play with that and you you know yeah. make some hacks, you can actually put in the phone mm. um, the other batteries because the battery of the iPhone Seven Plus is actually larger in capacity yeah. from the Six Plus, but it has the same connector. I was not aware of that. Yeah. The, there are there are a number of models of iPhone that have uh, a, a either similar or same uh, connector, but then yeah, of course, when the like the flex cable adjusts in length because you know the place that they had space for the the connector on the board moved because they put in a part. You know, I mean, it just <laughs> yeah. on and on and on and yeah. on, right? So so because so so the the other point I wanted to make is that there are relatively few iPhone models. Uh, relative to all of the other Android manufacturers, right? So there are not, I mean, there are, I don't know how many, but let's say 10 iPhone models, maybe, compared to, like, if you look at the Android ecosystem, I mean, it's hundreds of models, yeah. right? And so, yeah. and so the markets really, like, there is sort of just an economy of scale there, right, where the number of phones of a given iPhone model in the world is so much higher than the number of phones of any Android model, um, that brokering in iPhone batteries for one or two models of iPhone is a more lucrative business. Like you just have more more potential customers, right? So, right. Um, so if you go around the markets, I don't know. It's it's maybe like half iPhone and half Android, right? But then, but then in terms of finding parts, like you're just for each model, it's much much higher, right? So you really have to kind of dig. For Android parts, whereas like iPhone parts, it's literally everywhere you look. You can sort of find what yeah. you need. Um, 
so that's that's like one of the practical. So those are, I, I guess that and the and the brand recognition are the two practical reasons why I choose to tackle iPhone first. Why I've kept doing it is that as soon as I kind of went down that rabbit hole of like making my own iPhone and then the headphone jack thing, I came up with like thirty more ideas <laughs> yeah. that I wanted to do for iPhone, and and it keeps. And now that people know that I've done iPhone stuff, like I I keep getting sort of inbound stuff, inbound ideas and people wanting, you know, wanting to show me tools or whatever, you know, so it, it's become very easy to continue to do that. And I now know a lot about it. Um, and so it's been very easy to continue on that way. Um, I would like to do uh, um, something around Android. Um, and uh, I keep telling people I'll, I'll make my own Android phone at some point. Um, uh, and I think the, I mean, the, the limitation for iPhone and one of the reasons why I would like to explore Android is that on the software side, iPhone is so, so closed. And so right. there are a number of like iPhone hacks and modifications I'd like to do that are that I have not attempted because I know that I need more access on the software side than I'll be able to get, right? And, uh, and so I have a hope that, that on Android, that's going to be a much more feasible thing. Um, and so um, I'd like to go down that route. At the same time, you know, I, I, I think, as I said before, I, I really... I'm interested in, in expanding the channel beyond just sort of iPhone and Android and, and, and sort of building up those devices. And so, you know, right now, like, we're, I, I'm placing a lot of focus on um, factory tours and building that out. We've got some exciting travel planned. Um, so um, so I'm tr- trying to balance that, right? And yeah, not, as I said. Not get too it, niche on, on, uh, on, you know, what we're focusing on. Um, I, I guess I have really big visions for what strange parts can be. And, um and so I'm trying to sort of, you know, be broad enough in the content to help people <laughs> understand understand what my vision is. For... Um, I, I would like to I would like to ask a bit about your motivation and your energy about making YouTube videos, if that is allowed. Yeah, sure. Um, because <laughs> you know, um, I think I think I think HA remembers after we first approached you, there was a month of silence. And yeah. I was like afraid, like okay, maybe maybe Scotty is not interested any, anymore, and he changed his mind. And no. you know, and and then I changed that. Oh, just keep emailing him. Maybe something <laughs> happened to him. You know, yeah. I was like, okay, I keep emailing. And then suddenly this video popped up where you said, "Why I stopped making strange parts?" And yeah. And this was such a sad video to hear that you had um, a burnout and had to take a break of three months yeah. and uh, spend more time with friends and family than yeah. making YouTube videos. Yeah. So is this this thing of being always joyful and <laughs> always in a good mood, is that a, is that so, a problem? Is does it hurt to be happy all the time? Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good question because I, I, I think it is something that I struggle with, right? Um, which is, yeah, I mean, like, I don't always... Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not someone who's always happy all of the time, right? Um, but because I often take quite a bit of time to make a video, uh, there are times where... Like, I'm, I'm always sort of tracking the plot of the video in my head, right, as, I, as I'm making it. And there are times where I know sort of what the scene was prior to this. And I know that, like, I know kind of where I need to be in terms of to, to make that, that, that um, 
to make sure there's continuity between the whole rest of the video. And so sometimes, like, yeah, like I am, I am sort of pumping myself up to be to be happy or excited on camera when that might not be exactly what I'm feeling in that moment that day. Um, and uh, and you know, I think I think yeah, towards the end of last year, I was really sort of feeling burned out of like I was just spending all of my time sort of trying to to make more content, and I was dealing with. I mean, a good portion of last year, I, I just spent dealing with these, like, heinous issues around uh, my apartment in China, <laughs> um, which is just, like, like real estate, at least in Shenzhen, is, is you know, it's, it's a very rapidly moving target. And there were all sorts of problems with, like, leaks in the roof. And I was, I was actually, like, living in a separate, even worse apartment. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, while they were like renovating the apartment that I was uh, that I had been shooting in for the past two years, um, and then there were like leaks in the roof, and so anyway, I was I was like living this double life of like recording in one apartment and living in another, and uh, and that kind of stuff can can really drain you over time, and so um, yeah, I think I don't know, I I try and be, I guess it's really important to me to try and be really like authentic and and honest with people on camera um but that but i think i also sort of want to i mean i i want to be authentic in the stories that i'm telling and sometimes that necessitates a little bit of fiction in terms of like how i am feeling when i am on camera that day right if does that does that make sense of my mm-hmm. my speaking Absolutely. here yeah. um that being said that can be exhausting yes. <laughs> right so so um so I, you know, like for example, I am recording. I had been recording in Tokyo this week, um, and I got some some bad family news. Uh, my my grandfather passed, or grandmother passed away earlier oh, in the I'm week, sorry, and so like, I'm sorry to hear that. thanks. Yeah, I mean, she was she was ninety six, so it wasn't wasn't unexpected, and and um, you know, it was kind of the writing was on the wall. But like, that is a weird thing to like get that news and sort of be processing that on the inside. But like, that's also not the topic of the video, and like bringing that up like right in the middle of the video is like super weird, right? And so, um, so you know, you can either throw that video away and be like, well, I'm not gonna finish this. Like I only have a, a certain amount of time here in Tokyo, right? So um, uh, I guess I could make a video about that, but I think that's kind of weird too, because like that's not really the type of channel that I'm making, right? Is like, it's not just about sort of my personal life. Um, or I can sort of just like take some time, you know, process that as much as I can and then it's okay, like, now it's time to go to work and, like, and sort of put on, you know, put on the strange part space and, like, go out and do something that, like, I am genuinely, like, the thing that I am making a video about this week, I'm genuinely excited about. Like, I'm going back to Akihabara. Like, I found a cool thing. We're, we're taking it apart. We're seeing how it works. Like, I can get excited about that. Um, but sometimes it sort of means that I need to take something in my personal life and sort of set that aside for a minute. And I'm like you know, pump myself up to sort of be in that mode. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I, I have been to Tokyo two years ago. At, I totally loved it. So <laughs> Yeah, Tokyo is um, amazing. Uh, well, it's just, it's just interesting for me that you are so open about your uh, personal feeling and life in your channel because, as you mentioned in that video, other people who had burnouts and... Um, you know, yeah. the community is pretty rushed, and sometimes people lose their income, their uh, subscribers, when there's no video for three months. Yeah, and, I was and, super worried about that. 
and 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 also you have like a maximum time of 20 minutes and after that people lose attention and i was watching your videos and i was like okay did i really just watch 42 minutes of a factory <laughs> visit you know and and you're not starting like a typical videos like hi guys hi hackers and at the end like please hit subscribe and like yeah, and, yeah. and click on the bell icon so you get notified about the next videos you don't you don't care about this youtube um language well, I actually do that I, I i do ask people to subscribe at the end yeah, uh, but not like every time the same sentence. You are, yeah. 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 Well, I, I, di well I, I actually technically do say the same thing more or less each time. But I'm glad that you don't think so. <laughs> I'm glad that it feels natural enough. Yeah. I, I, tricked, I tricked the guys. Mission accomplished. <laughs> I, it, it may sound word, weird, but I, like, I work really hard for, for what I do to appear natural on camera. Right. And that is not to say that, like, it's all fake. Um, I think it's more to say that, like, recording yourself on camera and having it sound good and look good is hard. <laughs> and there's like a lot going on, like particularly when I'm doing like the last video that I recorded uh, about the oil painting village and electronics. Um, that was all like walk and talk shots. So it was all sort of this this, you know, typical vlog shot of like me holding the camera, walking through public. And when I do that. I am looking, I have to look directly into the camera lens. Um, I can't look into the viewfinder, which is off to the side, because then the eye line is weird, and it feels weird to the viewer. Like, it feels like we've lost personal connection, whereas, like, if I look into the lens, then I'm looking at you in the eye. It also, I can't see myself, so I can't see the framing of the shot. I sort of have to get the framing right, and then look to the lens, and then go. I also can't see anything around me, so I can't, like, and I'm walking through a crowded area, I can really only see out of the periphery of my vision what else is going on. Um, and so, you know, like, uh, and so that's, that's sort of a lot to process while trying to be natural on camera. And for that video, like, I wrote a script ahead of time because we were jumping back and forth between locations so quickly that I couldn't just ad-lib it. Like, the, the words had to be on point because I was sort of switching sometimes mid-sentence between locations, which is, like, filmed on completely different days, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so I, I needed to know, I needed to be working off a script so that I knew that when we got into edit that it was all going to match up. And so I'm literally, like, memorizing lines in between shots and then going out and doing them. And um, it's, I, I think I have been really learning how to be myself and, and be natural and be authentic and be real while juggling all of those things in the background, right? Of like all of those other things are running through my head of like, am I going to run into somebody? Am I in focus? Am I like, is the shot framed properly? Like, uh, do it, can I remember my lines, right? Uh, all of that. So that's that's been a learning process for me. Like I, I don't have a background as an actor or a presenter or a, or a speaker. Um, and that's that's just been a lot of like learning how to do that and, and, um, and uh you know, kind of learning along the way, and I still feel like I'm I'm a relative beginner on doing all of that stuff. Like I, I um, yeah, I feel like I still have a long way to go in terms of really feeling fully comfortable on camera and being able to really, really do that. Um, I'm in awe of some of the other people, like you know, like Casey Neistat's um, ability to to sort of be himself on camera is 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 incredibly phenomenal, and he's you know, I I think he's gotten there mostly just through a phenomenal amount of practice, right? Um, he's right. been doing for a long, long time. So. And and you have a very high production quality. For example, this, um, I don't know how you call it, this wind surfing board on tires. 
Oh yeah, the, the land yacht. Wait, wait, the wait, wait. Yeah. What? Uh, land yacht. The the ah. sailboat with with wheels. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That must must have been incredible difficult to shoot, and you actually were making it out of wood or something yourself. And... Uh, out of steel, so it's a steel frame ah. and then has like a wooden seat on it. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So I had I had made one of those prior. Um, uh, before I started Strange Parts, and I really thought that would be a cool build for Strange Parts um, to do. It's sort of a weird thing, and um, you know we'd get to do some welding and and uh, and then go on a little road trip, and and I wanted a second one so that I could take friends with me um, out to the desert uh, uh, to do. Um, in terms of filming, it wasn't too bad. Like the build was pretty easy to film. My biggest problem was that like um, at times I had the camera too close to the welding splatter. And so, like, I have, um, I now have, like, like various um, uh, burn marks on the LCD screen of the mm. camera. Um, not bad, just little, little pock marks. And then, uh, and then I noticed that I, I had um, uh, the, I, I put a UV filter on my camera lenses, which not everybody does. And I'm really glad I did because there was, like, welding splatter on the lens. Yeah. Um, but other than that, like, that, that stuff's pretty straightforward. You have to sort of get your exposures right to, to, um, to show off welding well, I think, because the, the, contrast between sort of the welding uh you know the the welding arc and the rest of the room is so big um in terms of shooting the actual like out on the dry lake bed where we were we were filming um that was actually really easy and fun it it was just a gopro it was a gopro on a on a uh on a clamp um that clamps around a pipe and because there are so many mount points on a, a land yacht we, you know, the land yachts are really easy to tip over. You can just sort of grab the mast and pull them over, and um, and because you're not in water, you can just step out of them and pull the whole thing <laughs> over. And so, you know, we were doing things like pulling it over and then putting the GoPro at the top of the mast, looking down, right? And you get an amazing shot. And so you just like you literally just stop sailing, grab the GoPro, you clamp it on the top, you start it recording, you sail for a minute or two, you stop. You turn it off, and then you just move it somewhere else on the land yacht, right? And so, so it's really easy to get like a big variety of shots. With I think we only had one GoPro out there with us, wow. right? And we just handed it off between us, and we, you know, we mostly just sailing around and having fun, right? Yeah. And then I had my my um, GH5, like my big main camera, and I had that on like a little uh, just the gorilla pod, and I was just had that in my lap, uh, and so then at various times I would sort of pull that on and do sort of the you know the standard vlogging shot, holding it in front of me or holding it off to the side or whatever. And so that's how I kind of got the medium wow. shots to me that were higher quality. And then I would just stop and set that down on the gorilla pod and then sail, you know, turn around and sail past it, right? And so then that's how we got sort of the moving shots, like the thick stationary moving shots, right? And then you just turn around and you go and pick it up again and you move it somewhere else, right? And so, you know, I mean, I don't know. We had, we had, I had most of those shots in like an hour or two, maybe, of just sort of screwing around, putting cameras in various places, right? And, um, and then, and then we spent most of the rest of the afternoon just goofing off in the in the lake bed. <laughs> People loved it, according yeah. to the comments of the video. Yeah, I um, think so. That, that one has less views than than pretty much all of the others. So I, th- I think it was a little too far in left field. I don't know. I, uh, I'd be curious to know why that didn't do nearly as well. I really like that one. Um, Maybe I shouldn't have brought up the question, so you wouldn't <laughs> no, you wouldn't no. worry too much in the future no, because I really that. like that. I, I, well, I'm glad you liked it. I, I don't really worry about it. I just, I'm often perplexed of like, why does something do well and something else not do well? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So where do you want to go from here? Let's talk a bit about the future. You are yeah. having your office now or still looking? Uh, workshop. So, so workshop. we just started doing that. So, so the thing that just happened, which I'm super excited about, is I've hired a head of operations, right? And so um, he just started uh, a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, we were together in Shenzhen, and then um, he had to go back to Canada for um, a family commitment that had been longstanding, and I, was, I had already planned this trip to Japan. And then we'll be back together in Shenzhen um, a week after next. So, uh, so that for me is a big, big inflection point because it, it means hopefully that I can hand off uh, a bunch of stuff on the business side of strange parts that, you know, sponsorships and lining up factory tours and, and, um, tracking down suppliers for things and researching stories. There's just like all of this stuff that happens in the background that eats up sort of time and attention, um, right. that is not actually like going out and shooting video. Right. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. And, th and that was sort of like after I sort of ha had the burnout and then I had the apartment eviction, right? I had, I got like a week and a half notice that I had to be out of my apartment in Shenzhen, which is where I did all the filming. Um, and so I've been like living in a hotel for the past couple months in, in China. Um, and, uh, and so phase one was like really high, find that head of operations. Phase two is he is now just starting the process of looking for that workshop, right? And that will give us that new sort of space, you know, that, that where I can set up a whole bunch of equipment and shoot on a regular basis, right. To sort of do these more in depth. I really want to get back to making stuff, right. And, and doing these sort of crazy, um, hardware adventures. And that's kind of been on hold and I've been doing more of the like travel stuff and factory tours and market tours and kind of things to, to keep the channel going while we get that workshop in place. Um, uh, and then phase three will be me finding an apartment somewhere near that workshop. The workshop is going to be harder for us to find and, um, and hopefully moving out of the hotel sometime soon. So, um, good luck with so that, that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. So that's sort of all the infrastructure we need. And then I think really like, I want to get back to building stuff. Um, we're lining up, we're actively now lining up some really exciting factory tours and I'm really excited to build out this factory tour format that I've kind of dabbled in and we've done, we've done three videos so far. Um, touring factories. Um, the one I'm most proud of is the the PCB factory tour that we did. Um, that was really well achieved. People really liked that. And there's just there's so there's so many more factories that I want to I want to go and show people. Um, and then I want to go see myself. Um, sort of do that. And then I really want to do some stuff in other countries. So um, as I mentioned before, like Africa, India, um, Bangladesh, Vietnam. Like there's there's some really exciting manufacturing stuff. There's some exciting market stuff. Right, um, and uh, really starting to to get get my feet wet in that, get our feet wet in that, and sort of go out and find some new interesting stuff that uh, that um, yeah, people haven't really seen before. So great. Awesome. So, so where can people find your stuff? Again, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you can go to go to um, YouTube.com/strangeparts is uh, the YouTube channel, um, strangeparts.com, um, or um, yeah, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, Instagram. Um, Facebook, all, all under Strange Parts. So you just search for Strange Parts. Um, awesome. We'll Great. Put links, we'll put links to everything in the podcast description awesome. and under the video and everything else. Awesome. Great. So thanks. You, we all, you almost talked for two hours. Oh, my God. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I had no doubt that we would have plenty to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very thankful up. that you are so open. I wasn't sure if you liked the personal questions so much. No, it's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, I, 
I figure anything that I've talked about on the channel is fair game to ask in an interview. So yeah, it's totally fine. Um, great, great. Yeah. Okay, great. great. Thanks. Have a good day, guys. Right, thank you. You okay. too. Bye bye. Good, good day, I guess I should say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Take care. Yep.